following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. We're going to close our series today on loving uh, one another, sort of a part two to the last message I preached two weeks ago um, on this series called The Church, God's Wisdom on Display. And one of the things I've repeatedly said throughout this series is that we cannot understand God's full plan for salvation unless we understand the role of the church. To be saved is to be born into God's family. And as a family, we are called to live in harmony with one another. Romans chapter 12, verse 16 says, Live in harmony with one another. And I want to say having harmony is important, but just as important, if not even more so, is how we achieve that harmony as God's people. Because I want to argue that there is a false harmony that we can achieve by simply limiting people in our community to those who are just like us. People who look like us and think like us and went to the same schools we did and have the same income bracket. We could call this unity through uniformity. Okay? Unity through uniformity. In other words, if you want unity, if you want everyone to get along, exclude those that are not like you. you know? Make them feel uncomfortable being in your midst. Another form of false unity or harmony is what we can call unity through superficiality. Unity through superficiality. In other words, keeping relationships so casual and superficial that we won't ever run the risk of hurting one another. Because the truth is, you never really let anyone in close enough to hurt you or to bother you. Um, Back in medical school when I was in Peoria, I used to go pretty regularly to the YMCA there and play basketball. And so you kind of get to know some of the guys who go to the gym regularly to play these pickup games. And the truth was, these guys were really fun to hang out with. It was great. You know, you get to know them. And I had no problems with them whatsoever. We never got into any fights, you know. We got along. There was harmony. But why wouldn't there be harmony? Because the only reason why we get together is to play basketball. That's it. And I think there's a danger that in the same way our relationships in the church can be so casual that we never go deep enough for there to be a real risk. In that sense, harmony can look pretty easy to achieve. But as I've been saying throughout the series, what God is building is a community that is characterized by this supernatural breadth and a supernatural depth of not just finding people that are like-minded and think just like we do, but having an open hand and inviting even those that are different than us to be part of this family, as well as a depth that ought to be unique among any other community in terms of the level of commitment that we have to one another. The unity described in the Bible is not based on uniformity or superficiality, but on God's love. John chapter 13 Verse 34 to 35 says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's interesting that Jesus calls this a new command. Now, that's kind of confusing. Because if you read the Old Testament, there's actually repeated times 
when the Israelites were commanded to love each other, love the alien, and on and on. And so why does Jesus call this a new command? I think the answer is found in the nature of the love that he is envisioning for this church that he is going to birth through his own death and resurrection. His specific command is that love ought to be the same kind of love that Jesus displayed to his disciples. Love one another as I have loved you. And we have to remember that Jesus gave this command right after doing the unthinkable when he washed the disciples' feet. This was a job considered so undesirable because it was, in all honesty, disgusting to have to do this. That it was usually in any household assigned to the lowest slave in that estate. But as the master, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. In John chapter 13, verse 12 to 15, it says, When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. You can imagine the emotions going through the disciples' feet. I, I the disciples' heart. <laughs> as Jesus is washing each of their feet, I think the natural reaction was, as they were waiting for the last guy to go, was someone had to say, Now, Jesus, let us wash your feet, you know? I mean, let us return the favor and wash your feet. I mean, I think this must have been an incredibly emotional moment to have your master sitting there touching your disgusting, dirty feet. And what Jesus says is very interesting. He says, you're just in this moment filled with this love that I've given you. I think you're deeply emotionally moved, and I think the truth is every one of you now wants to get on your knees and wash my feet. And Jesus could have done that, right? All 12 of you, take a turn, you know, the cleanest feet here. But he doesn't do that. He says, you know this love that you feel right now? You know how deeply humbled you are and how unbelievably grateful you are in what I've done for you? He says, don't wash my feet. Channel that love to one another and wash each other's feet. That's my heart, is I want you to take the love that you've experienced and direct it horizontally to your brothers and sisters who are in need of that love. As I shared in my last message, the primary way that God intended us to experience his love is through the love that we show one another. 1 John chapter 4, verse 11 to 12 says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Do you follow John's argument? How do we experience the love of an invisible being like God when we cannot even see or touch him? And what John says is we can feel God's love because he lives in us. 
And when we are filled with that love and we love our brother and sister, that is God loving that person through us. That is how we experience the touch of an invisible God through brothers and sisters in Christ who embody that love. That is why the church is so important. It is the primary way that God designed you to experience his love for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5 through 7 says this, For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us. But how? By the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Do you hear that? Paul was describing a low point in his life when he felt like giving up, when he was being harassed every direction he turned and doing the ministry of the gospel. And not only that, but he was consumed by fear on the inside. This normally courageous apostle was in the season of his life consumed by fear. But he testifies that in that discouragement, God comforted him. But the key is the way God comforted Paul was through another believer, Titus, who came to him and encouraged him, not only by his own presence, but by being a messenger of the love of these Corinthian brothers and sisters, of pouring out their concern and their love for him. One year into my work as a missionary doctor in Africa, um, I think I hit a low point. Um, Physically, I was at the point of utter exhaustion and mental breakdown, to be honest with you. Um, I was trying to run a 160-bed hospital with just one other doctor helping. I was on call every other night, working 60 to, I mean, actually 80 to 120 hours a week. The excitement had worn off of being a missionary and being in Africa. And the truth was, all I felt was tired and lonely and homesick. And I, to be honest with you, after that first year, was seriously questioning my calling and whether I made a right choice to relocate my family out in Africa. But it was in this season of discouragement that my brother and my closest friends made this incredible gesture of coming all the way out to Kenya to encourage me. They flew out there. And for a week, they stayed with me and they comforted me. And I showed them my work at the hospital. And we laughed together. And we ate together. And we studied together. And we prayed together. And it's hard to describe how life-giving that visit was for me to keep me going as a missionary. How much in that season I wanted to just give up and go home. And yet through that visit of these brothers of mine, I found the strength to keep going on and do that work that God has called me to. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is the community that God envisions for us. And let me say this. Even as we've been drumming this message for the last month, 
I think the truth is for many of us in this room, we're okay with the superficiality. It's cleaner that way. It's less messy, right? And the truth is you can be fine with that level of social engagement as long as everything is going well in your life. It's not until the crisis hits that you discover how poor you are in terms of community and how much you need deeper friendships and people that you can lean on. And I pray that you don't have to wait until a disaster strikes your family to say, where is the church? Where are my friends? But in this season, what God has given you right now, you would have the faith and the courage to reach out and seek these friendships in the church. If Jesus' love for us is our primary example for the love we ought to show others, then one of the main ways that it ought to be demonstrated is by serving others. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Romans 12, 10. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Philippians 2, 3-4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you for, to the interests of the others. As you can see from these verses, serving others starts with an attitude of the heart, not the action itself. Because one of the most basic stances in life is to continually try to elevate our own importance at the expense of others, isn't it? And when we really encounter the gospel, it turns all of that upside down and says, put others above yourself. The heart of serving others has to start with that, of giving dignity to others who are valued in God's eyes. It is out of that belief that I have that I can serve them. Paul points out that even in the church, in the body of Christ, there are always going to be some who are naturally viewed as lesser value. That's just the way it is, isn't it? There are going to be people that you may even look down on and think they're not worth your time. But he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21 to 23, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and, to the, head cannot, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable we treat with special honor. That's the heart of service, is I begin by dignifying you, saying you matter, you're important in this community, particularly to those who are struggling to feel that way in the community of God's people. Our second daughter, Noelle, uh, is a sophomore at Northwestern. And uh, last year, she ended up pledging in a sorority. And so, uh, you know, she called me up and said, hey, Dad, uh, there's a Father's Day coming in our sorority house. And so all the fathers are coming together to get to know one another and have a, a social. And uh, would you be willing to come? And uh, I don't like things like that, you know? <laughs> but it's my daughter, and I wanted to support her. So I said, I'll be there. So it was pizza and bowling and all that. This whole thing planned out for the weekend. And we got there. The first event was bowling. And I got there, and uh, um, so I got, you know, we all got paired with these different men and their daughters. And so I got paired with this guy. And we're on this lane, and uh, this guy was some real big shot engineer guy of some pretty big company, and he had flown all the way just to t attend this event 
thought that was crazy, but I guess he could do it, so he did it. And uh, it was just this atmosphere where you sense like everyone kind of posturing and kind of sizing each other up a little bit, you know. And, and so I just sat down at the bowling lane and was just talking with this guy. And I was telling him my story, telling him uh, I was a medical doctor, but I went to Africa and served as a missionary for five years, came back and left my medical practice to uh, become a pastor. And, you know, and, and, you know, that's a very compelling story. It really is, you know. <laughs> But this guy didn't think so, you know? <laughs> and he just looked bored with it. He just, and I could see he was distracted the whole time. You know, he was just looking around. And every time, every time I'd ask him a question about his life, and he just didn't want to engage with me. He just, I felt like he was thinking, why did a guy pair with this guy, you know? And I got the sense that he wanted to work the room and try to make some connections there. And talking with a pastor was not the way to do so, you know? <laughs> And to be honest with you, I mean, it's been a while since someone made me feel that way. Because the truth is, as a pastor, in most circles, I'm usually like top dog in most places <laughs> I end up going. <laughs> but in that room that day, he made me feel small, right? He made me feel insignificant. He was looking around going, gosh, you know, like when is this going to be done so I could talk with that guy <laughs> who I'd rather be talking with, you know? Um, Serving others starts with dignifying them, paying them enough attention to actually listen to them and saying, you matter. You're important to God, and so you're important to me. Diedrich Bonhoeffer says this. There is a kind of listening with half an ear that presumes already to know what the other person has to say. It is an impatient, inattentive listening that despises the brother and is only waiting for a chance to speak and so get rid of the other person. This is no fulfillment of our obligation, and it is certain that here, too, our attitude toward our brother only reflects our relationship to God. We're all guilty of this, aren't we? Of half-listening, like, eh, blah, blah, all you're hearing is blah, 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 because I don't even really care what you have to say. I just can't wait till it's my turn to tell you what I want to say, right? What Jesus is saying is serving others begins with dignifying them of actually valuing them, of listening and saying they matter. Jesus demonstrated his love for his disciples by washing their feet. I think it's easy to romanticize that event of washing someone's feet, but the truth is we're talking dirt roads, poor hygiene, no socks, open-toed sandals. It was a pretty gross job, okay? Listen, in the last message, I pointed out that there's an emotional component to love. There is. We talked about affection, right? But love is more than having warm feelings about someone. It has to be demonstrated through action, through action. Pastor Peter pointed this out in last week's message when he talked about the difference between just meditating on a song in your head and enjoying the melody to yourself versus the actual ministry of praise, right? in which you cannot minister to someone through your song unless you actually open your mouth and let them hear you sing. It's the same thing in serving others. There's never a convenient opportunity to serve someone else. There's always a cost. And often we're thinking, I got to deal with my own issues. When do I have the bandwidth to worry about this guy's problem? Let his problem be his problem. And my problem 
will be my problem. But Paul says this. That can all change. When even when you weigh your issues with their issues, you say, but I'm going to put you before me. And even with my busyness and all the issues I'm dealing with, I want to serve you because of what God has done for me. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. When we really understand the love that God has shown us, we can show that love and consideration toward others. Let me just wrap up with this in the next couple minutes here. The last thing I want to point out about this idea of loving one another is forgiving and bearing with one another in our weaknesses and sins. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2 says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And then lastly, Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. It's interesting that sometimes talking with uh, church members or other Christians, I'll hear someone confess that, you know, sometimes it feels easier to get along with my non-Christian friends than it is to deal with fellow Christians. And I'm going to guess some of you actually have that sentiment as well. Man, we all talk about this like community of love and how we're all this brotherhood and sisterhood in Christ, but truth is sometimes it's easier when I'm at work and I'm dealing with non-Christians. And let me say this. I, I struggle with this sentiment because uh, when I hear this sentiment because I think the subtext under that is that uh, non-Christians seem to be more gracious than Christians are. Now, actually, I don't deny that that's a real possibility. I think it's dangerous if just because we're Christians, we give ourselves credit to think we are actually more generous and forgiving and generous than we really are. But at the same time, I don't often think that what that represents is graciousness or mercy as much as when you're with, you know, uh, someone who doesn't particularly ascribe to a religious belief, often they tend to be more libertarian in their view of morality, right? It's basically this motto of life of, if it doesn't hurt me, if it doesn't affect me, who am I to judge what you want to do with your life? More power to you. If you want to worship pink elephants, go ahead. I don't really care, you know? Um, But I think the struggle is this. As Christians, we clearly believe that there are choices that are clearly regarded as right or wrong. Whether or not they affect us personally, we take a moral stance on absolute truths. I think the struggle then is this. How do I hold to these convictions and yet still display grace toward others who keep falling short of that standard that I believe in? That's the struggle of the Christian, isn't it? Is how do I show kindness and patience toward those who are violating the very truths that I believe so strongly in. To bear with this word that is used by Paul throughout these verses I shared, it means to tolerate something that is irritating or difficult or unpleasant, like bad weather 
or a rash. Okay? When God asks you to bear with one another, he is asking for patience with each other's faults, acknowledging that we're all sinners in need of God's grace. And when we're constantly offended by the failures of others, when you can make statements like, you know, can you believe she did that, Pastor? I have to say, yes, I believe that. And I believe you and I are just as capable of doing that. Do you not understand the gospel? Do you realize that there are people in your life that have to tolerate you? (laughs) I know you don't believe that. You're thinking, no way, man. Everyone likes being around me. I'm low maintenance. I'm easy. Marriage will wake you up to that fantasy really fast, right? Um, What's wrong with my wife? Why can't she appreciate what a good guy I am, you know? Um, You know, we can stand for these truths and defend them and believe in them with all earnestness and yet still extend grace and mercy for the fact that we all fall short of that mark. We are not each other's judge and jury. Brady Boyd says, you won't believe how many annoyances you can unearth in other people once you really start to look. And yet to them all, God says, see forgiveness through to unity. I love how he says that. See forgiveness through to unity. Keep accepting them without judgment until you're as one. When it's someone else's annoyance, we're kind, long-suffering people who are merciful through and through. But when the sparks are flying in our direction, all we are is long on suffering as our kindness goes MIA. This is why you and I must keep coming back to God, the foundation of an effective relationships, of all effective relationships. Because when we spend time in His presence, our hearts soften toward the people he created. And when our hearts toward them starts to soften, our words toward them soften too. That's so true, isn't that? When someone else is griping about what someone's done to them, you're so high-minded and so principled, right? Oh, just forgive them. I don't know why it's bothering you so much. Just be like Christ. And then when it comes our way, like, I'm going to kill that person, right? It's so hard when it hits us personally. Let me just close with this because I have gone over here. A final quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which I shared with you before in the Ecclesiastes series. Bonhoeffer says this, Every human dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. There are some lofty and high ideals we're striving for, but we all fall short of the mark. And this is why this forbearance and patience and mercy are so central to true community. You know, it's, 
that search for the ideal church, Bonhoeffer says, that is going to make you the enemy to the true church because, as Bonhoeffer says, that ideal church doesn't exist. It's nowhere. And some of you may worship with us for a couple of years and then you may come to that conclusion that I thought ICC was different. I thought ICC was one of the good churches, but I guess not. And you're going to go on in your search for that ideal church. Please let us know when you find it because we'll all move with you there. You know? <laughs> and then we'll corrupt that church too, okay? <laughs> when you sacrifice the true church for the vision of the ideal church, you become the enemy of God's church is what Bonhoeffer says. All we can deal with is what is in front of us, the reality of the people God has brought into our life. And so you can't say, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you more like Jesus? You have to say, I'm going to love you like a brother or sister until we all become like Jesus. Let's pray. Would you just reflect on these core convictions about what it means to be a community of God's people? And just lift that up to the Lord saying, God, I, I, re- I confess that at times I've had that judgmental eye toward others. At times I've been your harshest critic of the church. And all I seem to have is uh, all the criticisms and the way I cut down what the church isn't. And yet maybe what God is calling you to do is to say, you know, that ideal church that you keep railing about and, and preaching to others, it's, it's a fantasy. It's not real. Sure, there are lofty ideals that strive, pull us and cause us to strive for better. Sure. But the real church of Jesus Christ is messy. And it's filled with weakness and sin. And so it's how we extend grace and mercy and forbearance and patience to one another that we actually walk one step closer to what God is calling us to be as His community. So we just pray that for a minute and our worship team will lead us in a time of response. 